0: Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to read from verses 11 all the way through the end of the chapter and then take a look at about five places in these verses. beginning at verse 11, but when Christ arrived as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves to be cleansed with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him one of the most common experiences that we have as christians is the the, the ongoing guilt ongoing fear that our sins are not really forgiven that they're not really gone we still carry some measure of guilt our consciences still condemn us our consciences won't let us go and and so we can end up fearing that we're not good enough that we're not trying hard enough that we're not doing it right what do we do when we remember our sins is a really important question there's an even more important question though and that question is what does God do when we remember our sins Um, as we saw in the earlier part of, of Hebrews 9 and in much of this chapter, the, the context is the Old Covenant and the tabernacle. And We spent several weeks talking about the tabernacle. We saw that the tabernacle fulfilled the immediate need of the, the people of Israel. A sin, sinful man could go there or a woman. They could restore and then maintain a temporary truce with Holy God. The offerings of, of the tabernacle and the temple didn't remove sin. They just covered it up. They just concealed it. Uh, and that was so, so a sinner could approach God in worship and in prayer and not be destroyed. But it was an uneasy temporary truce because at any time uh, that, that, that truce could be broken. It depended really entirely on you. Once you had made the, the sacrifice, once you had made the offering, if you violated the law again, that truce was, was done and it had to be reestablished. So I think probably 90 or 95% of the labor that took place in the, in the tent in the desert and in the temple in Jerusalem was all based on maintaining this temporary truce. It's all that the priests did. It's almost all that they did. The Old Testament sacrifices covered sin. They did not remove sin. They deferred judgment, but they didn't satisfy judgment. But Jesus did something that was very different. And we're going to see that in these verses. The first thing that we're going to see if you look in verses 11 and 12 is that Jesus obtained eternal redemption. He entered the holy place once for all. It says at the end of verse 12, having obtained eternal redemption. Redemption The Old Covenant could only make this temporary, uneasy truce, but because Jesus died himself because he offered his own blood in the heavenly tabernacle, he obtained eternal redemption for us. So what is eternal redemption? Well, one way to think about eternal redemption is that it's a it's a, a it's a redemption that reaches back to the moment of your conception and reaches forward to the uttermost of eternity eternal redemption covers the eternal life that you will have it begins with the, the very moment of conception when you inherited adam's sin and it extends all the way into eternity to come it's eternal and that means that it's it can't be any greater than it already is it means that it can't be lost or contaminated Now, I know that there are different theological views. Um, There are people who would say you can be saved and lose your salvation and you can be saved and lose your salvation and you can have it and you can lose it and you can have it and you can throw it away and you can have it and you can misplace it. If you can lose it, it's not eternal. That, That should just be obvious to all of us. Eternal redemption doesn't mean anything if it's not eternal, if it doesn't last forever. And in fact, if... Redemption can be lost in our day, in the gospel, with faith in Christ. If redemption can be lost, then what we have is just the Old Testament. And now we must do whatever the thing is to reinstitute redemption. But praise God, that's not how it works. Redemption can't be lost. It's eternal. It can't be misplaced. It can't be undone. Your sin cannot undo your redemption if you're redeemed by Christ. Your sin can't undo redemption. Now, what about the sins you haven't committed yet? What about tomorrow's sins? Well, if redemption is eternal, it begins with your conception and it carries all the way through the, the fullness of your eternal life. It can't be lost. Jesus did not die for your sins past, present, and future. When Jesus died, all of your sins were future. There is no past for him. There is no present for him. When he gave his life, he gave his life for the totality. Understanding this, that Jesus obtained eternal redemption then leads naturally right into the next statement in verses 13 and 14. And that is Jesus freed us to serve God. If the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh... Verse 14 says, how much more will the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So we have the the picture of of all of the Old Testament, all of the tabernacle offerings and sacrifices having to do with what's on the outside and what Jesus does having to do with, with what's on the inside of cleansing the conscience, but he cleanses us so that we can serve. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, says that at the moment of salvation, we are rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. We become servants of the kingdom of God rather than servants of darkness. Another one of those interesting theological things where there's disagreement in the church is the idea that a Christian can be demon-possessed or come under satanic influence. Colossians one thirteen says, "If you're born again, you're transferred out of the domain of darkness. Satan no longer has any authority or power over you. You're transferred out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the the, the beloved Son of God. And so Paul urges us in Romans 12.1, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Worship is not singing. Worship is not raising our hands or kneeling. It's not closing our eyes and praying. Worship is life in faith, according to the grace of God, lived for the honor of God. So when you sing songs, you're singing his praise. When you work well, honestly, diligently, you're worshiping God. When, when you forgive people who have harmed you that are impossible to forgive, you're worshiping God when the person at the counter at the, at the check stand gives you too much change and you turn around and say, no, that's too much. You're worshiping God. You're honoring the Lord in your whole life. We are saved to serve. And he says here that he cleanses our conscience from dead works. Dead works certainly is a reference to sin. Acts of sin are dead, works. They lead to death. They result in death. All sin, every sin ultimately leads to death but dead works are also works done under the old testament system of sacrifices because those works could not perfect anyone hebrews seven nineteen says that the the law perfects no one the law made nothing nothing perfect and so again that idea of you go in You offer the sacrifice, you you combine the animal with the wave offering and the drink offering and the peace offering, and you confess your sins and you lay your hands on the head of the animal and the priest slices the throat of the animal and another priest catches the blood and then that animal is dressed out and part of it is burned on the altar and part of it is roasted and you and the priest eat it and now you have established an uneasy temporary truce is a dead work, because that truce can be broken before you ever leave the temple. The old covenant never allowed you to stop atoning for sin. It was dead works. But Jesus frees us from sin. He frees us from the presence of sin, from the power of sin, and from the penalty of sin. Why do we sin as Christians? Because we like it and we agree to it. But no longer because we're enslaved by it. No Christian has the, the freedom to say or the right to say, I couldn't help myself. None of us. That that's That's hard for many of us to grasp. If you talk to somebody who is addicted to drugs and alcohol, it's almost an impossible thing to say. But it's the truth spiritually. What happens in the spiritual realm doesn't always go through to the physical realm. Until these bodies die and are raised, these bodies are going to continue to struggle under those old physical desires. I'm going to wear glasses until the day the Lord takes me home. He can choose to heal me at any time, but there's probably about three billion people on the face of the earth who are ahead of me in terms of healing from, from glasses. I'm not worried about it because the body I have in eternity is not going to need glasses. The body that I have in eternity is not going to need any help from anything because Jesus has freed me from all of that. He's freed us from the presence and the power and the penalty of sin. Now, with that, he didn't free us to go live our own lives according to our own desires and our own ambitions. That's what got us into trouble. He frees us to be servants of his kingdom for his glory and for our joy. The next thing that we see in verse 15 is that Jesus mediates the new covenant. He mediates the new covenant. A mediator is somebody who stands between two people and makes peace. Who helps them agree. Who helps them come to a a common relationship. Jesus mediated for us by dying for us. He mediated for us by dying for us a death has taken place it says in verse 15 and he died once he died once we see that in chapter 7 verse 27 he doesn't need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because he did this once for all we see it in nine twelve. he entered the holy place once for all We see it in chapter 10, verse 10. By this will, the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, once for all doesn't mean for all people. Once for all, the phrase means once for all time. Once in history, once in the entire history of eternity, Jesus died. Just once. Just once. So, just ponder this. If Jesus' death was not enough to save you 2,000 years ago, you will never be saved. Because he will never die again. And his death is the only thing that can save. So rather than dying all over again and over again and over again, or allowing himself to be represented as dying over and over again, which is what the Roman Catholic Mass does, Jesus mediates the new covenant. It's a new covenant that was established in his blood as he died on the cross. And and I just want you to get this picture. There was a point in time 2,000 years ago, just about, where... Our Lord, our Savior, having been born, having lived a holy life, having ministered for three years thereabouts, was taken to Jerusalem or went to Jerusalem, was captured in the Garden of the Gethsemane, and went through several kangaroo court trials, was beaten and tortured, and then was nailed to a cross up on, the, on a hill outside of the city where he was just left to die. And on that cross, the wrath of God against all of his people was poured out in its entirety. God didn't hold anything back. He holds stuff back from us all the time. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, Jesus says. If he convicted you of all your sin right now, you'd just self-destruct. Your conscience could not take the understanding of the depth of your sin. But God didn't hold back any of his wrath when Jesus died on the cross. And when Jesus says, it is finished, it was finished. And when Jesus yielded up his spirit and died, his dying was done. He'll never die again. A single act. But when Jesus ascended to heaven, he began to intercede. And he has interceded for his people constantly since then. Unceasing prayer for them. So as the mediator, Jesus comes to the Father with his own blood and is accepted as a mediator. And then he steps into the place of an intercessor. And he's praying for you right now. He's praying for you right now. He's praying, he says, for those who draw near to God through him. In chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Single sacrifice followed by ceaseless prayer as he mediates. The next thing we see, we're going to skip a number of verses, go to verse 24, verses 24 through 26. Speak of Jesus casting away sin. He didn't enter a holy place made with hands, just a copy of the true one. He entered in the tabernacle of heaven to offer himself once. And once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, put away is a bad translation, in my opinion. It's a bad translation. If you put something away, it means to put it where it belongs. It means to box it up. It means to store it. It means to put it away where it's safe and where you can find it later. Are we supposed to understand that when Jesus forgave you, he took all of your guilt and all of your sins and put it in a box taped it shut and wrote your name on it and then put it on a shelf so that he can bring it back out isn't that what you're afraid of isn't that kind of our fear I remember my sins I still feel the guilt of my sins what if God remembers my sins what if God has them locked in a box somewhere after it says after all it says put them away now most of us I think would understand that put away here means he took them away. But my point is that we don't use put away like that anywhere else. So a little language lesson for you. The first time the phrase put away appears in writing in English languages in the mid-1300s. And from the mid-1300s until 1607, put away meant to destroy, to renounce, to dismiss, to get rid of, to put an end to. In 1607, it began to be used for put away as in put it in a box, put it in the drawer, lock it up, keep it safe, protect it. When the translators of the King James Version used put away here, and most English translations now with the exceptions of the the, uh, Christian Standard Bible and the NIV, the New International Version, have put away When they used it, they weren't saying God takes your sins and puts them in a box and wraps them in in paper so that they don't get damaged and then saves them for later. He was saying God destroys your sins. He casts away your sins. See, Jesus doesn't put away your sins. He casts away your sins. I prefer William Tyndale's translation, which was done about 90 years before the King James, 80 years. What Tyndale says is that he was manifested to put sin to flight. To put sin to flight. It's, it's kind of cool driving through northeastern Nebraska, especially in the morning as we're going up to Creighton. There's all kinds of little black Twitter birds on the road and everywhere else. And when you come up, the car puts them to flight. We, we almost put a goose to flight this morning. Actually, we almost put a goose to death this morning. We, we, we did put a goose to flight. They don't, they don't get out of the way like a Twitter bird gets out of the way. So if, if you're redeemed in Christ, this is one of the things that I really want you to remember, and I even give you permission to cross out, put away, or cross out, put, and write in, cast. Jesus didn't store your sin. He didn't put it away where it's safe. He removed it. He destroyed it. He dismissed it. He put it to flight. That's the gospel. That's why the new covenant is so much greater than what the old covenant does. What the old covenant did did really was put it away. It wrapped it in cloth. It wrapped it in the blood of the sacrifice, and it deferred judgment till later. What are you going to do with that? I don't know. Put it in a box. We'll decide later. Are you going to eat this? I don't know. Just put it in the fridge. Somebody will eat it. And then what do you do? Three weeks later, you throw it away. Finally, God got to the point where he threw it away. And then finally, verses 27 and 28, Jesus is coming again. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment, that's a a good verse to remember if you're dealing with Buddhists or anybody who believes in in, uh, reincarnation. We're not reincarnated. We are going to die once and face judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Without reference to sin means that when Jesus comes back, it's not to preach the gospel. It's not to die on the cross. It's not to appeal to sinners to repent and believe. When he comes back, it is for those who eagerly await him. If you'll turn in your Bible to John chapter 1, John makes this interesting statement about the Lord Jesus. In verses 10 and 11, he says, Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. So Jesus came to those who were ignorant, and he came to preach. He came to reveal. He came to manifest. Verse 18 says, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father has explained God. Jesus came to the world that was ignorant to educate that world. Verse 11 says, he came to his own, the Jews, and those who were his his own did not receive him. doesn't say they they were ignorant of him. It says they, they rejected him. So Jesus came to the rebellious. Jesus came to the rebellious to rebuke them and to call them to repentance over sin and to call them to believe in his name. He came to the ignorant and he came to the rebellious. He came to preach, he came to teach, he came to heal, he came to manifest the gospel, he came to die on the cross, and he, he came and fought, if, if I can put it this way, he came to fight an uphill battle. He came against, he came to this massive group of people, the Gentiles, who were utterly clueless, utterly clueless. And people say to you, it's so hard to share the gospel today because people don't have a background. That's exactly what Jesus faced, Right? people didn't know it's exactly what the apostles faced especially when they went into the gentile lands nobody there had any clue when they talked about sin or salvation or the cross or the resurrection or jesus what they even were even talking about they couldn't just say god has a wonderful plan in your life they didn't even know what god meant so they had to educate them and jesus came to a people his people the jews who were in rebellion against God. And he came to do that to bring salvation. When he returns, he's not coming to die. He's not coming to the ignorant. He's not coming to the rebellious. He's coming to those who were eagerly awaiting him. Nobody was eagerly awaiting him. That, that's not true. That's not true. Simeon in the temple had been promised by God that he would not die before he saw the Messiah. There was one man who had spent decades, perhaps, of his life knowing that he would lay eyes on the Messiah at some point before he died. How did he know that? Because he was clever? It's because God revealed it to him. So, when Jesus returns, it won't be to start the process of salvation. It will be to complete it. It will be to take to himself all of those that he has saved, all of those who are eagerly awaiting him. It's important, I think, that we eagerly await him. It's important that we, you know, we, we don't want to get into endless speculations. I'm, I'm not saying we should do that. It's important that we not just spend our lives off in some fantasy world. But I think it's a good thing every once in a while to stop and say, what will it be like when he comes? What might it be like when he comes? And to look forward to it. I'm looking, I don't know about you, I'm looking forward to to the Lord returning. So as we bring this home, one of the most common experiences we share, as I said at the beginning, as Christians is the fear that our sins are not gone, that we we're still guilty before God. We're afraid that we're not trying hard enough, we're not good enough, we're not doing it the right way. What do we do when we remember our sins? What does God do when we remember our sins? And, and we've, we've seen some answers here. We've seen that Jesus obtained eternal redemption by his death on the cross. So when, our, when the guilt comes up about who we are and what we've done, we can point to the fact that, yes, we are guilty, but we have an eternal redemption. We, we've seen that Jesus freed his people from dead works, both of sin and the law, to serve the Lord with joy and purpose. And from that, I think we can take the idea that it's not God's intention that we spend the rest of our lives punishing ourselves for our sins. Jesus took that punishment. We need to take that seriously and rejoice in it and treat it with great respect and gratitude. But he's not calling upon us to continue to punish ourselves. He's calling upon us to be grateful for the gift. We've seen that Jesus is our mediator, that he's ceaselessly praying for us before the Father. In those moments of strength, in the moments of joy, in the moments of weakness, in the the moments of of sheer terror and panic, he is praying for us. He is praying that we may not be lost. He is praying that, that the glory of God would be manifested through us. And so we can trust that even in our difficulties, it will be. We've seen that by his perfect sacrifice, Jesus put sin to flight. He didn't just put it away for later. He didn't save it. He didn't stick it in a Tupperware container. He got rid of it. He destroyed it. And then we've seen that Jesus is coming again for those who eagerly await him. So that's on on that side. So here's here's three verses for you. When you remember your sin, you need to remember something else. Psalm 103.12 says that he has removed our transgressions from us as far as east is from west. That's an infinite distance. East is that way west is that way and they never meet if he took your sin and he sent it east and he sent you west there's an infinite distance for God between you and your sin because of what Jesus did he says in Isaiah 43:25 that he wipes out our transgressions for his sake and will not remember our sins he will not remember our sins he knows that we committed them. God is, is, he doesn't have Alzheimer's. He refuses to remember them. He has an ability we don't have. He has an ability to completely forget what we've done and to treat us as though we've never sinned and to love us as though we've never sinned because we're dressed in the righteousness of his son. We can't do that. We look at somebody and we think, yeah, they've made some really good strides, but I remember when. He doesn't do that. And third, Micah 7.19 says he will cast all of our sins into the depth of the sea. Micah wrote hundreds of years before Christ. He's writing about the fulfillment of the new covenant with Jesus' death and resurrection. So with Jesus' death and resurrection, God has cast all of your sins into the depth of the sea. At the time that Micah wrote this, The sea might have meant the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is only 140 feet deep. But you know, back then, there's no submarines, there's no scuba gear, there's no deep sea diving. 140 feet is gone. 140 feet is on the moon. There's no way to get that deep. He might have been talking about the Mediterranean Sea. The Mediterranean was almost three miles deep. He might have been talking about the Marianas Trench, which is more than six miles deep, 36,000 feet. The point isn't to say that, that if somebody invents a submarine or the right kind of breathing gear, God will bring your sins back. The point is to say your sins are gone. They're gone. And that's what you need to remember. When you remember your sin, you need to remember something else. You need to remember that your sins are gone. And by the mercy of God, he hates our sins more than we do. You're afraid at times that God is going to bring your sins back up. He is absolutely unwilling to do that. He will never do that. He will never do that. When that happens, that's the devil whispering in your ear, maybe, but it's almost certainly just your own nasty flesh, which is filled with hatred and self-loathing we can't help but remember our, our sins and our guilt they weigh us down they enslave us and interestingly enough people often who can't help remembering their own sins can't help remembering the sins of others as well the the guilt of the memory of our own guilt is closely tied to the our memory of the guilt of others if we want peace with god it's there but peace with god re- requires that we remember christ that that's why Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 11, when he's speaking about communion, he says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance. Do this in remembrance. And we're not set up for communion today. That's okay. It's okay. I was just, I didn't know how far to go. Not a problem. Enjoy your day. It's okay. So you remember your guilt. Remember the cross. You remember your shame. Remember the cross. Remember Jesus. The, 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 the memories of my guilt, of my sin, are like echoes. Every once in a while, they just come bouncing back. Most of the time, I don't go looking for them, right? I don't know if you go looking for your own guilt, but most of the time, I don't go looking for mine. It just kind of pops up. You know what never just automatically pops up is the memory of the cross. I have to deliberately remind myself, I have a Savior who died. When Jesus took my place on the cross, you remember that above his head, they put a plaque. This is Jesus, King of the Jews, it said, in, in Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. So everybody could read it. Well, it kind of struck me a year or two ago that if there's a plaque up there, maybe it was covering up something else. And maybe it was covering my name. That my name was on that cross. And when Jesus took it, his name went over my name, and he took my cross. I have to remember that. I have to remember that the father poured out every last bit of wrath against me on his son. He didn't keep back a little just in case. He emptied himself of it. It's gone. Jesus bore it all. Jesus paid it all. And so all to him we owe. Let's remember him. Let's Stop being worried about remembering our sins and be sure to remember him. Father, we thank you for your love for us, for your kindness to us. We thank you for the graciousness that you've shown us. And we thank you for the gift of the Savior. There's not one of us who, who doesn't at times struggle with and experience the memory of sin and the memory of shame and that can be crippling to us. And in your word, you're you're so smart. In your word, you don't tell us to ignore those memories. You don't tell us to just blind ourselves to our own conscience, that wouldn't be healthy. Instead, you tell us to remember the savior to remember something even better, to remember something more powerful than our own sin. And that's the death of of Jesus Christ. And so help us do that today. Help us remember that Jesus died for us. Teach us, whenever we have those memories of the past, to remember what Jesus did for us. And teach us, Lord, whenever we have fears about the future, to remember that Jesus is coming back for those who eagerly await him. And that the the time between right now and that moment is getting smaller all the time. We thank you for your love for us and your graciousness to us. Fill our hearts with the gospel and fill our mouths with the gospel. And we thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. We are dismissed.